0: Thank you, Tim. That prayer of supplication. And so good to be here with you this morning. Two tools that will help you to get the most out of the message that I will, with God's help, preach to you this morning. Number one, your copy of God's Word. I hope you have that, whether it's the ancient uh, uh, manual copy or if it's electronic. Number one, your Bible. Number two, your worship God. As I go through the message this morning, I'll make reference to a variety of scripture passages. If you're like I am, as I listen, uh, I don't remember well. And so, you know, I'll I'll say, oh my goodness, what was that passage that uh, they just talked about or he just made reference to? And so you may not have time to go back and look it up as I'm preaching and making reference to these different passages, but you can jot it down. I find that that's what I do when I'm listening to other preachers. I like to jot down the scripture references they make. I can always go back later and take my time and and, and look them up and investigate them and study them uh, more. So if you have those two handy, that should help you. And of course, the Holy Spirit is here to help all of us when it comes to fully and appropriately understanding the Word of God. As we continue in this beautiful love story that we find given to us, uh, a combination of narrative and dialogue that takes place in the book of Ruth, recorded back in the Old Testament. And this is all taking place about a thousand years before Mary and Joseph made their way to the little town of Bethlehem. Well, we find that uh, a Moabite woman by the name of Ruth found herself making the journey to Bethlehem and the area thereabout. And so, you know, when I'm and it's been a long time since I put a puzzle together. It's just not one of those things that I'm patient enough and somehow just don't have the talent to understand how... Anything more than, say, what Salem and, and Asher may be putting together is probably out of my league. So these people that put these thousand-piece puzzles together or 5,000 people... You know, God bless you, you know? Um, but But... When I have put puzzles together, particularly if they're over 100 pieces or something like that, I find myself really watching the box cover because on the box cover you'd have the whole picture. And, you know, sometimes you can't appreciate each little piece and where it fits in and how it fits in. But you look at the, you know, hold it up against the the backdrop of that that box cover. You can see the whole picture and you understand. And and so let's put our finger on the pause button this morning. Before we launch into picking up in chapter 2 verse 17 where we left off, I want us to step back and and take a look at God's big picture. Because the book of Ruth, like all the 66 books of the Bible, has a place in this wonderful tapestry that God has painted across the scope of human history from Genesis to Revelation. And sometimes to appreciate how a book fits in to that picture, it's good to just step back and take a look at the whole big picture. So let's consider the divine design Behind the story. The divine design behind the story that we see. I'll use a familiar passage that everybody knows by heart. John 3.16. For God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him. Should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus is telling Nicodemus in that little passage there. About something absolutely startling to the typical Jew. That is the wonderful love of God. For all people. When Jesus is given that passage of Scripture, He's saying that in His Son, Holy God is expressing His intense love for sinful, rebellious humanity. And guess what? That's people of all races, all backgrounds, all cultures, nationalities, and all standing socially, economically. And so that's a big part of the picture to understand. And so as we look at the historical elements of the book of Ruth and any other book, it's good to remember the essential elements that history plays in a book that's given. So don't just look at this and say, oh yes, this is a thousand years before Jesus was born. But understand how it plugs in. God God is painting this picture across, across the whole scope of human history. And it's a beautiful tapestry. And this tapestry unveils a plan. God has a plan. It's a wonderful redemptive plan. It's a plan for all people. All people. I go back to Genesis chapter 12. In verse 2 and 3. When God called out Abraham. And he gave Abraham a very specific promise. He told him, he said there in chapter 2 and 3 of Genesis 12. He says, Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation of you. And I'm going to bless you. And I'll make your name great. And you will be a blessing. And I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. And in you all the families of the earth. Did you get that? He didn't say all the Jewish families of the earth. All the tribes of Israel. They hadn't even come into existence yet. Will be blessed. He said all the families of the earth will be blessed. God is weaving into this tapestry, this beautiful pictorial story across the scope of uh, landscape of human history. He's weaving into that, in addition to the Jews, He's weaving in Gentiles. Now that ought to be a great encouragement to all of us here today, because we are Gentiles primarily, okay, Or, or actually exclusively all of us. Let me, let me just make reference to a beautiful part of this story that you'll find in the history of the nation of Israel where God is about to bring the children of Israel into the promised land. Moses is off the scene. Joshua is on the scene. They're poised and ready to move and to take over the land that God has promised. And so in Joshua chapter 2, and you can just jot this down, but in Joshua chapter 2 in verse 1, Joshua sends two of his spies into the land that they're about to go into, specifically to the town of Jericho, to spy it out. Jericho would be the first formidable city that they would face that's heavily fortified. And, and it's interesting. These two spies, as they go to Jer- Jericho, find themselves... It might sound like it's coincidental, but I'd say it's providential. They find themselves in the house of a harlot by the name of Rahab. And, you know, of course, logically you would think, well, yeah, this would be a place, if you're strangers and you want to kind of blend in, you go to a place where there's a lot of traffic of strange men coming and going, and nobody would ask questions. Unfortunately, people did ask questions. The king found out. And so he's sending a search party to the house of Rahab, to get these Israelite spies and she of course tells a little story well a big story she says you know that they they were here they they left and they're headed back towards the Jordan River so quick send a search party and in the meantime she hides these two Israelite spies takes great risk to do that and all through chapter 2 of Joshua you'll find that this woman this this pagan uh, Canaanite woman expresses to these two israelite spies how they know about how god has brought the israelites out of egypt how he parted the red sea how he conquered nations in their pathway and brought them here to the promised land and basically she says to, to to the two spies you listen the fear of the lord god has caused our hearts to melt There's nobody in this city that's not trembling in fear of your God. But listen, she makes a declaration in verse 11. She says, for the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. This is a pagan woman, a Canaanite woman. And yet I believe God has drawn her to have faith and to believe that the God of Israel is the one true God. Well, I'll fast forward. She hides the spies until the search party is gone. Then she makes them promise. She says, listen, I know you guys are coming. I know that you are going to conquer this city. I want you to promise me one thing because of the kindness I've shown to you. I want you to extend mercy to me and my family. All my household when you come to conquer the city. And they of course promised her. Told her to put down a scarlet cord over her window. Which was on the wall of the city. And they were when they came. Now if you jumped over to chapter 6. When the, when the big uh, battle took place. Really wasn't a battle. Because you know they marched around the city. They marched around the city as God instructed. And God tore down the walls. And that's why the kids and team kids love to sing. You know Joshua fit the battle in Jericho. Because the walls came tumbling down. But in the midst of all of that. When they were conquering the city, Joshua, the leader of God's people, named the name of Rahab, the harlot. And he says, when you go in to conquer and destroy and to kill all the people, he says, you will spare. This this woman who is a prostitute, who is, we've made a promise because she showed mercy to the Israelite spies. And sure enough, they conquered the city. They brought Rahab and her family out. And they dwelt outside of the the camp of the Israelites. But it says that they dwelt in the presence of the people of God from that time on. God wove into the tapestry of the history of the Jewish people this pagan Gentile woman. But you see, that's the same thing that God is doing all through the scriptures. All through the history of mankind up until the, the writing of the New Testament. Even in John's Gospel in chapter 10, Jesus understood what His Father had in mind in in sending Him into the world to offer redemption to humanity. Because in John's Gospel in chapter 10, and you remember this wonderful shepherd image that Jesus is painting of Himself in chapter 10 of John's Gospel. He says in verse 14, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep. And I am known by my own. And anybody hearing that would automatically assume he's talking about the Jews. And he was talking about the Jews primarily. But don't stop there. In verse 15 of chapter 11, uh, or chapter 10, Jesus goes on and says, The Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now listen to verse 16. Listen to what he says. This is important. And it fits into the whole scheme of what God is doing. He says, And I. Other sheep and other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, who are not Jewish, who are not biological descendants of Abraham. He says, Yet they are my people, they are my sheep, and them also I must bring. So you see, this whole theme of God weaving into the fabric of who would be his people takes place in the Old Testament. Going all the way back to Abraham, coming up through Joshua with Rahab the harlot. We see it in the book of Ruth, and Jesus talks about it. But even a couple of weeks ago, I was kind of thrilled when I heard Tim preaching out of Romans in chapter 11. Paul got it. Paul understood. Well, why wouldn't he? Paul was the the apostle to the Gentiles. He would surely get it. And Paul used the wonderful analogy over there. In Romans 11, you'll remember when Pastor, when Tim was preaching this a couple Sundays ago, in verse 17, he used the analogy of the olive tree. And he talked about how there, there were branches that were broken off. He says in verse 17, and if some of the branches were broken off, that would be the Jews who did not believe in Jesus, who rejected Jesus, they would be pruned off of the olive tree of God's people. He says, sure enough, they were And and he says, and you, and he's speaking to the Gentiles, being a wild olive shoot were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. So you see all the way through the Old Testament, we find from time to time, God weaves in Gentiles into the story of his wonderful redemptive love for humanity. And so as you think about the spiritual, not just the historical implications of what God is doing here, we also want to consider the spiritual implications as well that underlie the details as you see. And this is where we talk about the story of the book of Ruth. Because it's a, there's a wonderful, wonderful message in this that has great spiritual implications because the story of Ruth portrays God's grace, God's wonderful grace towards Those people who don't deserve his love. Of course, we think about Ruth. Here she was, a Moabite, a Moabitess to be particularly specific. She was a Moabitess, a Gentile, and yet God extends grace towards her. Think about what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5 when it comes to you and me. He says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. Through the godly character of this Israelite man by the name of Boaz, Ruth, this foreigner, this stranger, is experiencing amazing grace. I mean, do you remember in the previous chapter we were talking about Ruth being out in the field and how all of a sudden she found great favor in Boaz's eyes. And he was not only allowing her to glean in his field, but he was also inviting her to come and drink right from the water uh, 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 containers that his servants had. Not only that, not only could she drink water, but she could come and eat lunch with them. Oh, but not only that, not only could she come and have lunch with his servants and with Boaz out there in the field, but he was even giving her some of his tweets you see grace is unmerited favor there is nothing about Ruth that earned these favors that she that Boaz was extending to her hey ladies and gentlemen guess what there's nothing about the blessings that we receive as God's people that we have earned or deserve. That's what grace is. That's why we call it amazing grace. God extends that wonderful, undeserved favor towards us. And it flows through the book of Ruth. God is painting a picture of Himself. He's painting a picture of Christ. That we can see in the story unfolding between Boaz, in this relationship between Boaz and Ruth. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 and 22 The Apostle Paul says, and you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked deeds and wicked thoughts. He says he has reconciled to himself in the body of his flesh through death that he may present you holy and blameless before himself. Folks, that's grace. That's grace. We were soiled and condemned in our sin and unworthy, undeserving, and God, is the one who took the initiative to reach out to us Boaz took the initiative to reach out to Ruth and yet the story not only reflects and portrays the grace of God but the story also portrays God's love and this is a love story as I said last time it's a classic love story because it keeps you on the edge of your seat wondering, you know, are they going to kiss? No, not that, but, you know, are they going to fall in love? Are they going to have a relationship? Is this going to be a marriage, you know? And, and so in this story where we see a relationship where they were absolutely strangers, there's a love that is kindling there. And the same thing, I think about in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, when it talks about, Paul says, in this God demonstrated His love towards us that while we were still sinners, did y'all get that? While we were still undeserved, undeserving, wretched, miserable, hell-bound, hopeless sinners, he says in that while we were still sinners, God demonstrated His love towards us in that He sent His Son To die for us. Man. Don't ever get over that folks. Don't ever get over the awesome love of God. Boaz is exhibiting. And you'll see as we continue further in the story. Today he's exhibiting a wonderful love. Towards this undeserving Moabite. Giving her favor. That the average Israelite woman would have been jealous of. I dare say if you went through the city and town of Bethlehem and asked any of the available ladies who are are looking for a husband, how would you like to be Mrs. Boaz? My goodness, who wouldn't jump at an opportunity to be the wife of a highly respected and and loved man in the community who had great wealth and he was known to be wise and and he had great uh, integrity? Who wouldn't? And yet here's Ruth, minding her business, gleaning out in the field, And God the matchmaker brings Boaz along. Hey, it's a wonderful story. It's a beautiful story. God has shown his wonderful love towards us. Do y'all understand that? Did you grasp the benefit of being in a relationship with the, the, the creator of the universe? The God who is sovereign over everything and yet he calls us his children. I like how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. In chapter 1 of Ephesians, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love having predestined us to, be, uh, to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glory, of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. <sighs> what a, and, and, and you see, in the story of Ruth, we find images that give us glimpses of the big picture to appreciate the impact And the significance of this little love story tucked in here in the Old Testament between Judges and 1 Samuel. It's good to step back and just remember the big picture and what it represents now. We go back to looking at the story of Ruth and we talk about the mercy of God brings hope to the hurting. Let me say that again. The mercy of God brings hope to the hurting. We all know what it's like to hurt. Physically, of course. We know what it's like to hurt emotionally. We know what it's like to hurt relationally. Oh, listen. We've all hurt at times. There are some who hurt more than others. But you know what? I think about Psalm 147, verse 11. Psalm 147, verse 11. The psalmist says, The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear or respect Him, in those who hope, who hope, in his mercy there's hope in the mercy of God he doesn't give us what we deserve (laughs) because he loves us he's already proven that but he gives us instead wonderful blessings and so here we got Ruth we left her off there in chapter 2 having had lunch with Boaz and his servants and then going back out into the field she's a hard working woman hard-working woman goes back out into the field to continue gleaning and so let's pick up in verse 17 okay chapter 2 verse 17 so she gleaned in the field until evening and beat out what she had gleaned in other words she threshed it and it was about an ephah of barley which is something like a half of a bushel 30 40 pounds which is a real good take if you're a harvester and you get that much that's a good that's a good take home course we know that in his grace (laughs) and in his love boaz has instructed his reapers hey guys listen don't fuss at her if she comes up around the sheaves and starts taking some out of that and by the way uh Drop a few more grains uh, along the way. You know, leave a little bit in the pad. You know, get, get a little careless when you see Ruth behind you. So she's just gleaning. And she's just filling up her bags and baskets and whatever. And she goes to the threshing floor. And she threshes it all out. And she says, whoa, I've got an ephah. My goodness, that's a lot of barley for, for two widowed uh, women. So she, she goes back then in verse 18. Then she took it up and went into the city. And her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She brought out and gave to her what she had kept back after she had been satisfied. If you remember back in verse 14, when she was sitting at lunch, Boaz was giving her treats. She was eating her little, she was probably eating her vine and sausage, and he was still giving her honey buns and everything, you know, that, that, all his special things. And she, was, she ate all she could, and it says she stuffed some in her sack. Not for herself. Remember, I told you, she was, she was unselfishly, lovingly. Thinking about her mother-in-law. So here she comes in with an ephah of of barley grain. But then she says, oh, here, mama. I got some treats, too. And she lays those out there, too. Tells us something about the character of Ruth. Now, I want you to understand something, though. Because Naomi begins to see the sovereign hand of God. She begins. Now, remember, Naomi is a woman who is bitter, who is pessimistic, who is downcast. And who was saying, you know, poor me. God doesn't like me. He's making my life miserable. He's taking everything I've got. So she wouldn't have been the person that you would want to take a long journey with. Not at that point. But now the sun is beginning to shine. The light is starting to break through the darkness. Because she's beginning to see the sovereign hand of God on her life and the life of Ruth. So Naomi begins to see the sovereign hand of God, not only in the provision that provides abundantly for their basic needs. and We just talked about the half a bushel of grain that they have, but the providential provision of redemption for her family. How do we know that? Let's read further. Because she's wondering, my goodness gracious girl. I sent you down there just to find a patch of the field that you could grain, maybe scrounge up enough grain that we can have enough to keep from starving to death. And here you come back with a great big old basket of, of barley. So the first thing in her mind is where in the world have you been? In fact, in verse 19, and her mother-in-law said to her, where have you gleaned today? And where did you work? Blessed be the one who took notice of you. Huh, she doesn't know yet. But you see, Ruth is interesting. Naomi is asking, where did you glean? What what, what portion of the field, of the community field? She's trying to figure out who in the world would be so gracious to a Moabite woman and two widows. And Ruth answers, not with where, but with who. Look in verse 19. Ruth goes on and says, Blessed be the one who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name, now mind you, Ruth didn't know Boaz, Ruth didn't know the family connections, but Naomi does, so Ruth is simply repeating the name of a man that was very gracious to her, and very generous towards her, and kind of liked her, the man's name, with whom I work today, is Boaz, Now I'm going to tell you something, if we could look inside of Naomi's mind like we can on those cartoons, you know, where it shows the wheels grinding or light bulbs going on, if we could happen to see inside of the mind of Naomi, the minute that Ruth said, oh by the way, the the man that I was bleeding with today, his name is Boaz, and Naomi is like, whoa! Then in, in verse 20, then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, "Blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead." Ruth is saying, "What? For a basket of barley? <laughs> you're having a praise celebration? I mean, I mean, it's a good thing, but you're acting like man. We just struck it rich." Naomi said to her, "The man is a relative of ours, one of our near kinsmen. In our culture, in our time, we can't fully appreciate that. But if you go back into Leviticus chapter 25, verse 23 through 25, you'll find even with the land of the Israelites, the people of God, God considered it to be special and sacred. And it was never to be passed over to foreigners. So a man, even if he got very poor, and had to rent his land out or whatever put it in the possession of another man at the year of Jubilee. God would allow for a kinsman, a redeemer, whoever, who, who had the means. Would purchase that land back, give it back to the original family so that it would stay in the family. So a kinsman redeemer could redeem the land if it somehow came, got out of the possession of a family member. But even more importantly, in Deuteronomy chapter 25, you'll find that the same concept of kinsman redeemer played into situations where a Jewish woman was a widow and didn't have children, which made her extremely vulnerable. God in his mercy allowed the kinsman redeemer, which would be her the husband's brother, the the deceased husband's brother, or the closest kin to take that widow as his wife, to carry on the family line. And that's important. So Ruth is thinking, Naomi's thinking, whoa, of all the men, of all the the fields that you could possibly connect with, my goodness, isn't God great and awesome? Because Ruth, this is the man who can actually provide a future. See, they came back to Bethlehem with no hope of a future. Two widows? One being a Moabite? One being past childbearing age? I mean, come on! And yet, into that story, God wove hope because of His mercy towards them. I think it's interesting. The Lord continues to cultivate the relationship between this mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. As we read further in verse 21, it says, Then Ruth the Moabitess said, He also said to me, You shall stay close to To my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And listen to Naomi's response. Because in Naomi's response you sense her care. Her deep care for her daughter-in-law Ruth. And and, and through her counsel to Ruth. And Naomi said to Ruth her daughter-in-law. It is good my daughter that you go out with his young women. She changes it there. Because they did have young women that accompanied the men. Who came behind the men. You know, kind of tidying up the sheaves and things like that. But said it's good that you stay with his people and and that people do not meet you in any other field. Naomi understood. Ruth is a Moabites. She's a stranger. The harvest field is not the most friendly place if you don't have family ties. Women were vulnerable. To being abused and, and 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 Naomi understood that so she's counseling her daughter listen you listen to cousin Moab uh, Boaz you listen to cousin Boaz you stay close to his people because you'll be safe and he's already proven he's going to take good care of you so you see this relationship just to think at one time Naomi was trying to ditch her back in Moab in Moab now granted she wasn't doing it for her own selfish needs she was thinking about Ruth but she's also now very endeared to her. But also in verse 23, you see where Ruth's deep devotion for Naomi continues because it says, so she stayed close by the young men or young women of Boaz to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. So this verse tells us that she was there sometime. Stayed through the barley harvest, stayed through the wheat harvest. So no telling how many wheats maybe a month that she's out there harvesting developing relationships and 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 all the time she dwelt with her mother-in-law she stayed close to Naomi the relationship between the daughter-in-law and mother-in-law begins to flourish as God unveils his wonderful plan for the family so as we move further jumping over to chapter three we see have having talked about God's Mercy and God's hope. Let's consider how we see images of the faith and grace pattern that is so, impor, uh, so much a part of redemption. Faith and grace that results in redemption. First of all, let's look at the careful plans of a caring mother-in-law. Now Naomi's the wheel is turned. The, the wheels are turning. She knows the personalities. She knows the system. And she knows what needs to take place. And she is the master matchmaker. So, in verse 3. We don't know, like I said, we don't know how much time has transpired. But Naomi's ready to get things cranked and going. Okay? Verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, uh, said to her, to Ruth, my daughter. Shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? In other words, that there may be rest in your life. You see, this is very similar back in chapter 1, verse 9. Before they left Moab, Naomi told both Ruth and Orpah, go back, go back to the house of your mother. Go back to your people where you'll find rest. In other words, you'll find security with another husband. She was concerned about those two girls. She loved them. She sensed that there was no future for them back in, in Israel. So out of the kindness of a heart, she was trying to encourage them to go back where they'd find rest. But isn't it interesting now, in Israel, in Judah, in Bethlehem, Naomi is saying, Ruth, listen, I want to make sure that you have a future. I want to make sure you look ahead in your life, you'll have a sense of rest and security. So I'm going to give you a plan. Okay, I know some of you daughters and in-laws are cringing now you say oh no I'm very wary of mother-in-law plans or schemes or whatever but but, but her intentions are that it may be well with you now listen to the plan now in verse 2 now Boaz whose young women you were with is he not our kinsman in fact he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor and when they harvested their crops, they had a big threshing floor. There's usually other farmers, they shared it. It was up on top of a hill usually where the wind would blow. And, and, and we think commentators say that Boaz probably chose to do his at, at night as did some of the others because the breezes were more uh, consistent, not gusty as the daytime. So better for, for uh, blowing out the chaff and, 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 uh, and winnowing the barley. So she's, she knows the routine. And he says he's gonna be up there at the threshing floor tonight and um and, and, and usually This is kind of, I know back when I was growing up on the farm, and Pastor Mark can identify, you know, harvest time was kind of the celebration time. When we would be harvesting in the crops, we would have corn shuckings, and there was a great times of community coming together and harvesting a man's crop, and we would would work out in the fields, and then the ladies would be cooking big meals. So it was a social event. Well, we'd come back and eat fried chicken and chicken and dumplings, homemade biscuits and pies, and oh, my goodness gracious. and just So we were celebrating in the harvest time, and so there was some bit of celebration to in the air during the time of the harvesting and and so the men would spend the night out there you know to protect their interests to make sure that you know nobody tried to you know uh, get their harvest and and also they would sit around and eat they'd have catering you know pizza coming in (laughs) I don't know goat burgers or something but they would have you know food coming in and 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 they would have sit around and, and drink and they would feel good and and so she knows the routine and listen to what she tells ruth I, I think this is so beautiful how the bible just tells it like it is she says in verse three therefore wash yourself i guess they didn't take showers every day In <laughs> yeah especially if you if you've been out in the field gleaning okay and and anoint yourself they didn't have antiperspirant deodorant so they had to use a scented olive oil and they just you know spices that make you smell good and put on your best garment you get the idea? You kind of get the idea that Naomi was saying, Look, honey, I don't want you to go out there in your usual widow garbs that you've been harvesting with. I want you to get there and look good and smell, smell pretty. Okay? So she... And go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man, speaking of Boaz, until he has finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be... When he lies down, that you shall notice the place where he he lies, and you shall go in and uncover his feet. There's a custom. And lie down at his feet, and he will tell you what you should do. Man, this tells you a lot about the confidence that Naomi puts in Boaz, being a man of integrity. Oh, let me just say this too, according to commentaries and some of the background. At the threshing time of the year, when the men would be out in the fields like this, spending the night drinking and having their, um, um, having their big feast and celebrating, it wasn't uncommon for the, the prostitutes of the town to take advantage of the fact that, you know, here are the men, it's a festive mood, they're away from their wives. And so some of the town prostitutes would sneak out there and kind of, you know, add to the excitement and that type of thing. So, you know, there's, there, there's risk involved here because if anybody saw Ruth coming out there looking pretty and smelling good, they would say, oh, get Moabite, she's a prostitute. But, but, but so there, there are risk involved In verse 5, I want you to look at the response of Ruth. This this shares with us the trust that she has in her mother-in-law's risky plan. Okay? She says in verse 5, All that you say to me, I will do. I'll do it, just like you said. So there's risk of her being discovered and being accused of being a prostitute. Misunderstood. Mislabeled. There's a risk of her taking these steps. And Boaz said, Get out of here. I'm not the marrying kind. You know, how dare you come and throw yourself at me like this? You know, and and, oh my goodness, she would have been the scorn of the town. Oh, there are risks involved. But you know, when we follow God's instructions, it doesn't always come risk free, does it? You know, sometimes it takes great faith to follow the specific instructions of God's plan in our lives Naomi is given a plan to her daughter-in-law oh got you on the edge of the seats now right okay as we continue here let's look and see the response the gracious response of this kinsman redeemer so she went down to the threshing. Verse six. Verse six. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her, just like uh, Naomi said. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk, his- he wasn't drunk, by the way. He drunk, but he wasn't drunk. And his heart was cheerful. He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and she came. Now notice her actions. She came softly, tiptoeing, uncovered his feet with the, the blanket or whatever he had and lay down. That's all she did. Just came. Did, just, she didn't know beans about this Jewish custom. But she said, mom-in-law said do this, I'm doing it. Great mess. Now it happened at midnight that the man was startled. You said, what happened? Did she tickle his feet? Or did somebody come out and goose him or something? No, he got cold feet. Come on, folks. Stay with the story. She had uncovered his feet. He's out in the open. The breeze is blowing. He's been sleeping. He went to bed snug and warm. all of a sudden he says, Hey, hey look, have you ever woken up? Your feet be freezing. You know, Jan's always pulling the cover off of me. And I said, yeah. <laughs> he was startled. And he turned himself. And there was a woman. Now he gets startled. <laughs> there was a woman lying at his feet. I'm sure he didn't just say, oh, it's a woman. ha. <laughs> And the verse 9, and he says, Who are you? Now listen to her response. And she answered, I'm Ruth. I can just hear the tenderness in their sweet voice. I'm Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing. Wait a minute, hold on. That expression has come up before. All the way back in chapter 2, verse 12, when Boaz was blessing Ruth, He said, the Lord repay you for your work and full reward be given to you. This is chapter 2, verse 12. Given to you by the Lord, God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. She uses that imagery now and she's very humbly, very respectfully saying, I'm Ruth, your maidservant. Take me under your wings. You have already professed that your God has taken me under his wings to protect me to provide for me now it's your turn Boaz now he knows Ruth okay is not a strange woman and girls I wouldn't suggest you use this technique today okay <laughs> find yourself in jail but she goes on to say take me your maidservant under your wing for you are my kinsman and bingo he knew exactly hey listen Today is typically, not always, but it's typically the man that springs the question, that gets on his knees, pops out the ring. Honey, will you have me as your husband? Will you marry me? Ruth is proposing. That's what she's doing. She's very humbly, very respectfully, following the instructions of her mother-in-law, and she is proposing to her kinsman redeemer. She's saying basically to Boaz, you know it and I know it. I have a legal right to ask you To take me, your kinsman, under your wing, to be your wife. To protect our land and to protect the future of our family name. Now, I want you to you're talking about a gracious man. Now, mind you, you've just been woken up at cold feet and found a strange woman at your feet. Okay? Listen to verse 10. He says, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter. Listen to the endearment there. For you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning in that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. He said, listen, I thought you were merciful. I thought you were a woman of great kindness because of how you treated your mother-in-law. But look at you. You're you're choosing this old man like me over all these young men out there, whether they're poor or rich. And here I am. I'm an older man. And yet you've locked your eyes on me. How gracious are you? And now, he says in verse 11, My daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request. For all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. That's very important. He knows the character of of Ruth, but not only that, he knows the people know the character and the integrity of Ruth. Now, if it is true that I am your near kinsman, however, there is a kinsman nearer than I. Oh, you're just throwing your Bible down, you're folding it up. You say, I knew it, I knew it. That's that love story where it just seems like everything is going perfect. And then in comes this rascal that interferes with the relationship. Ah, I thought they would have made a great couple. Well, don't give up, don't give up. He says, you know what, I am your kinsman redeemer. But technically, there is another relative who is probably one cousin closer to Elimelech than I am. Technically, Ruth, he has the first shot. And if he chooses to accept you, to take you under his wing, then it's good. He says in verse 13, Stay this night and in the morning it shall be that if he will perform the duty of a near kinsman for you, good, let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. So he gives her his assurance. If this man doesn't want you I guarantee you. You won't have to ask me again. But he says, I'll take care of it. Don't you worry you pretty little head over this. Verse 14. So she lay down at his feet until morning. And look at this. This is the integrity of this woman. And she rose before before one could recognize another. Another was still dark. She got up before dark. Then he said, do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. In other words, they don't want to take the uh, chance of anybody misunderstanding her intentions. In verse 15, and he says, "Bring the shawl that is on you and hold it." And when he held it out, or when she held it out, he measured six ephahs, and, and probably that's a translation error, because six ephahs of barley would probably weigh about 200 pounds. Now we grant Ruth is a strong woman, but I don't think I could carry 200 pounds of. You know, reminds me of the time we went to Kenya and we're up in the mountains, and I noticed all the women were carrying these big sacks, you know, sacks of seed and and things, and 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 bundles of wood. The men didn't carry anything. I said, man, we thought we had it right. But anyway, here this woman, just carrying this great big old sack oh, you know, over up on her shoulder, going up this mountain trail, and, and we stopped to take a break, and she laid her sack down. You know, being a good southern fellow that I am, I, I go over there, ma'am, <laughs> You mind? how about if I carry that sack going up the hill for you, you know? <laughs> and, you know, she smiles, and I reach down, and ugh. And I said, ugh. And finally the pastor, he saw the situation. He said, oh, Pastor Charles, no, 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 no. It would be disgraceful for a, a, a guest to carry sack for a woman. I said, you're right. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. <laughs> so it probably wasn't six ephah of Bali, but probably... Uh, six sea which would make it about sixty to eighty pounds. But he, regardless, he gave her a lot of grain to take home to her mother-in-law as a sign, as a gift. In verse sixteen, so when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, "This is Naomi." It's interesting. Naomi asked a question: "Is that you, my daughter, coming in the door?" Here's what she's really asking: She's asking, "Are you the future Mrs. Boaz?" <laughs> she, she, hey listen Ruth didn't sleep well that night Naomi didn't sleep well that night <laughs> and, and, and Boaz has had better nights to sleep too but, so, so she's waiting then she told her all that the man had done and she said this six ephahs or seahs of barley he gave me for he said do not go empty handed to your mother-in-law Boaz is sending a message to Naomi I got this covered don't you worry. And then listen to the response in verse 18. And then she said, Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. For the man will not rest. She knows She knows Boaz. She knows men. <laughs> when you're in love, and you got a chance to get the girl of your dreams, oh, he's not going to quiddle his thumbs through the day and say, oh, let's see, i I got to go over there and finish harvesting the barley. Now he's going straight to the gate, straight to the judges. He's going to find that next kinsman, a redeemer. And so, for the man will not rest until he has concluded this matter when? when? Today. That's a hard thing because, you know, the Bible tells us in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he'll make your path straight. We're told in Psalm 37:7, rest in the Lord and wait patiently upon him. Don't fret because of other people who prosper, wicked people who bring wicked schemes. But rest and wait on the Lord. That's a hard thing to do, isn't it? When there's something that you want so much with all your desire, all your heart, all you just... Listen, and God is saying, just wait. That's a tough thing to do. But Naomi said to her, honey, just wait. If they knew that old hymn, All the Way My Savior Leads Me or Jehovah Leads Me, where it talks about the Lord all through our life, patiently, knowingly, strongly, lovingly guiding us along, (laughs) they would have been singing that. They would have said all the way, Jehovah leads us, takes us under his wings, cares for us. Oh, listen, God is doing a great thing. He'll do a great thing in your life and my life, as we also Follow his plan to the detail and patiently wait for him to work out his purpose altogether.